listening to the Verse podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this discussion on Professor Lali Khalili's new book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, published recently by Verso Press. I am Rafif Ziada. I'm a lecturer in the politics department at SOAS University of London. And joining me, of course, is Lali Khalili, professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. She is the author of Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration, and Time in the Shadows, Confinement and Counterinsurgencies. Um, I'm very excited to be having this conversation. We were meant to be having it in person, but of course, because of COVID-19, we're all under lockdown. So if you hear my neighbors screaming, please excuse us and uh, welcome Lali. Uh, thank you so much, Rafif. It's really lovely to see your face. Um, obviously, we haven't seen each other in months now, but uh, it's always uh, it's it's always a little bit disconcerting to see friends on the screen after you haven't seen them. But I guess that is how it's going to be for the at least the next few months, possibly the next couple of years. Um, very nice to see you, and thank you very much for your lovely introduction. Um, I wanted us to start this conversation by asking you um, about this, the journey you took from Time in the Shadows to this book. Although now, as, as we've been saying, it's so strange to be saying it, seeing each other on cameras and having the conversation in this way. Um, there was a journey prior to the book. And I just wanted to ask, how did you become interested in transport infrastructures and why the Arabian Peninsula in particular? Um, so there is a kind of a complicated story behind this. And uh, my academic career, I've been always interested in war and violence. And, and I've written about uh, war and violence, counterinsurgencies, and the kinds of things that ordinary people experience in ways that are not always necessarily discussed when people are writing about counterinsurgencies or wars, etc. And while I was doing the research for that, um, I actually spoke to a US military officer who said something to me that stuck with me for years. He said, you academics and journalists, you're interested in anything that bleeds. But if you actually really want to understand how war works, you'll look at the back end. You'll look at the stuff that has to do with the political economy and the money, because that is what actually makes things bleed. And and he was a little bit flippant, of course, um, and uh, not actually more than a little bit flippant, but um, but it was something that I really stuck with me. And then after I finished the counterinsurgency project, I found myself um, in some ways at loose ends because I, uh, it had been an incredibly emotionally taxing um, project. I had um, interviewed people who had been in prisons, um, in detention centers, who had been tortured. Um, the, one of my interviewees had been the guy that famously his picture came out of Abu Ghraib, the, the hooded man who was standing on a box with wires hanging from his hands. And when going through the experience that he, when, when talking to him about the experience that he had gone through, it, it, I found it really difficult. And my parents had been political prisoners. So in some ways it triggered something very personal for me. Um, and I was looking to do some kind of project that wasn't necessarily going to be so directly um, concerned with uh, the bleeding edge of violence, I guess I should say, um, with the very most violent bits of the world in which we live, um, just so that I could have a break from thinking and writing about that, and just so that I could um, also digest what I had gone through. Around the same time, a friend who worked for uh, International Transport Workers Federation and I were having dinner together 
together. And he suggested that maybe I should be interested, given that I speak Arabic, given that I can travel freely to most of the Gulf. Um, maybe it should be something that I should start looking at, um, a research project that has to do with uh, the way that dockers and seafarers and logistics workers in the Arabian Peninsula, in particular in the Gulf, um, so the countries of uh, UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, etc., deal with their workers in those sectors that International Transport Workers Federation represents. Um, and at first I started doing that research, but then the more I researched it, the more I realized that actually there is a back history here. I mean, Arabian Peninsula before the discovery of oil was really famous, as you know, for uh, fishing and for seafaring. Uh, Arab seafarers of the Arabian Peninsula were very famous, the Kuwaitis and the Yemenis and the Omanis. Um, and they ranged across the um, Indian Ocean in, in their travels. Um, and yet that history had been displaced by the history of the production of oil and the emergence of really, really big ports, mechanized ports that we all now recognize. And I somehow became obsessed with that. And I really wanted to talk about how that trans uh, transformation happened from a seafaring peninsula with a very long history of trade across the Indian Ocean into a very different kind of uh, logistical and transportation, maritime transportation world. And so that's how I ended up with the current research project and the current book. It's so interesting that you say it was a move away from the very direct bleeding violence, as you call it, because in, in so many ways, it's just a different kind of violence that's often hidden and not on our front screens. Yes. Um, I think that you're absolutely right about that. And in fact, actually, you yourself have written some really relevant stuff about this, which I think is um, quite important and which was inspiring to me. Um, and, and yes, I think the violence there is definitely there. And, and of course, sometimes when war breaks out, as it has done so repeatedly over the course of the last uh, four decades in, in the region, um, both uh, between the countries in the region and, of course, uh, external intervention, primarily by the US. US, um, it, it becomes an incredibly bloody and violent um, kind of thing. And of course, the transportation industry is completely involved in that because you, how else are you going to transport your arms and your tanks and your soldiers and your everything else that you need in order to conduct a war? So yes, it is directly relevant. But even on, in the day-to-day -day way that we look at that, as you yourself have written, the maritime uh, industry is involved in providing uh, as your own work shows, uh, humanitarian support uh, or humanitarian goods. It, um, and, and of course, the day-to-day -day trade in cargo itself is could be quite violent because there's so much exploitation involved in it. Well, I've, I've been reading the book and I actually consumed it so quickly. Um, and it was, it was such a nice relief from the day-to-day -day news that we've been listening to every day. Um, and what I really loved is that you're telling quite a complex story that is often extremely hidden. People, I mean, now sort of COVID-19 has brought it to the forefront. How, where do our products come from and who handles them? But generally, people don't think about ports and logistics. Um, and you've integrated a lot of this very complex story together from the port construction to the shipping to the finance to the insurance. And of course, because we're speaking about the Arabian Peninsula, there's all the entanglements with war and oil trade. And you tell this very complex story in a really beautiful, accessible way. Um, I'll give a shout out here. Thank you. <laughs> I'll give a shout out to all the bits of poetry as well. I thought that was remarkable. 
Um, and you weave all these multiple threads together. Like I kept thinking of it as a tapestry, the way it was done, with with this incredible historical detail. So I, I kept asking myself, like, how did you make these decisions about structure? <laughs> what what to bring in, what to keep out? Yeah, that was incredibly difficult. In fact, the final, the penultimate uh, version of the manuscript was, I think, about 60 or 70,000 more words than what you have in your hands today. So there was a lot of cutting that had to go in there in order to make this a kind of a reasonable text. And I want to start by uh, thanking you for recognizing that I had included poetry and literary works in there. Um, I really wanted, I, I want to start with that by saying that I really wanted to access the voices of the people that actually worked in these fields. And in many instances, it is impossible to find, it is becoming a little bit more possible now as, there, as, as more memoirs of Arab lefties and union organizers and whatnot are beginning to be published uh, in a more concerted sort of way since the 1960s. Again, there was a, was a round of those publications in the 1960s. And then there has been a period of a little bit more uh, kind of a retreat on publishing those kinds of things and more things are now coming out so alongside those of course poetry and literature has been the way that many in the Arab world have tried to express the particularities of their lives and and when it comes to seafarers of course there's also and I didn't incorporate a lot of that in this book or actually I did and I had to lop it off and so that's going to come out in other articles but there are also of course lots of poetry that seafarers um, employ and have employed historically in order both to, to work or to commemorate what happens at work or by their uh, wives or mothers who have been left behind in order to sort of commemorate their loss. And so it was important to incorporate a lot of that. And, and some of the poetry, of course, comes from the Caribbean and other places as well. So that was important. In terms of what I chose to write about, um, I, I have said this before, I'm a bit of a magpie. I'm attracted to anything that's shiny. And, and I was trained as an engineer. So some of the shiny stuff is actually really engineering stuff. So part of the reason that I was really interested in so many different things is because I've got a politics and so you have to inevitably include the capitalists and the workers and the, the seafarers and the dockers uh, but I also had this weird kind of technological fetish which I, I suppose I should confess to having and I really wanted to learn how the ports worked and how they were constructed and who produced the cement that went into building the ports and who produced the cranes that were operating in the port and what kind of software was used and who built the roads that uh, carried the goods out of the ports. And so I really ended up doing a lot of different things. And in some ways, what I chose to leave in was um, came out of conversations with friends, including you. So um, finding out who found which bits interesting uh, and how they found it relevant and, and trying to keep a lot of that in and the stuff that has been lopped off are no less important so they're going to come out in, form, in a form of article but they didn't quite hang together as much as I hope the book does now. I also didn't want to include a vast amount of stuff about oil because inevitably everything anybody ever writes about the Arabian Peninsula ends up being about oil and although the story of tank is really interesting and I'm going to be writing something about that very soon I really wanted the book to sort of have a slightly different angle in looking at the infrastructures um, in the peninsula so that so that I am not only talking about what happens once petroleum is discovered and how that transforms everything but rather 
what other uh, factors, what other transformations, what other infrastructures were emerging and how were they shaping everything, including actually the trade in petroleum. So, so I think that that was also, that, that was also partially a decision that went into the making of the book. I think my favorite types of books are the ones who that actually invite you to research something even more. And I think this is definitely one of those books where you read it and you think it, it gives you so many threads to follow. And I really hope researchers do start to pick up on those threads of infrastructure in the Arabian Peninsula in particular, because like you say, there's been such a focus on the oil trade um, that we've flattened those societies and that history to such a degree. Um, but I, I have to ask this question because several people have told me that I have to ask it. Part of your research for this book was traveling on a container ship. Yes. And, and you can really see the impact of that on the writing of the book, like the addition of such texture, sound, the movement of the sea, the way the equipment works on the port. And, and that's so interesting, again, because all of these things tend to be hidden behind these big complexes and we don't see them, although they impact our lives so much. So... I wanted to ask you on a methodology note how important that was to you to make those trips, but also did it did it change your outlook? Did it have an impact on the on the project itself? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I had done a huge amount of archival research, both in actual national archives and whatnot, but also in the archives of old trade journals down in the you know, dusty shelves of American University of Beirut Library, where they have. Uh, business magazines going back 50, 60, 70 years. And so I did quite a bit of research on that before I actually went on board a ship. But I was reading Financial Times once and there was a, um, there was a piece in there by a beautiful writer, not a, not a business writer, um, who had uh, written a, a book of his own about, his name is Horatio Clare, about going on a ship. And it was a very poetic piece. But at the very end of the piece, he had a little notes or Financial Times had added a, little, uh, added a little note that said, if you want to travel by freight, there are these specialist um, travel agents. And I was completely shocked and so excited. And so that absolutely had to be incorporated into the travel. Because I mean, what else is kind of cooler than getting on a massive container ship? Actually, what I really wanted to get on was a tanker. But tankers are very, uh, as a, are a lot more difficult to get on because of liability issues around passengers in a, in a, in a fairly volatile or more dangerous um, vessel. But container ships were actually fairly easy to get onto through these travel agents. And it was, um, I mean, it was very exciting because you get to go onto a port from the land side, you get to board a ship, you get to travel alongside. And because you're a passenger, uh, and officially so, the, uh, the, the crew members were quite relaxed in talking to me. Of course, I was telling them that I was writing a book. Uh, there was absolutely no, no subterfuge there. Um, and they were quite happy to talk to me about everything that they were doing. And because I was allowed to hang out pretty much as much as I wanted to with the seafarers, I not only got a sense of the day-to-day -day rhythms of work and what it required to be there, um, or uh, and not only a sense of what it was like for a ship to come into a port, some of the ports to which I did not have otherwise um, access. Uh, for example, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, where I couldn't I couldn't go. I was I was not able to get a visa. Um, 
but I could come in from the seaside. So I actually arrived in Jeddah from the sea. Uh, and, and it is an experience because then you get a sense also of the rules that are involved um, uh, when you arrive in a given port um, and, and the affect also of the seafarers. The seafarers didn't particularly like going into Jeddah. Part of the reason for that was because uh, just a day or two before arriving in Jeddah, all the porn that they had in their rooms, all the alcohol that they had in their rooms, even the vinegar, because it was fermented, I don't know where they got these weird rules, but all of this stuff was uh, col collected and put in the forecastle because they could have uh, security, uh, Saudi security board the ship and actually do a search. And if they found these kinds of things, they could get in trouble. And so there was there was a sort of an anxiety. These guys were separated from their you know pornographic films and from their alcohol, and they weren't too happy about it. But there was also a little bit of anxiety because the fact that security apparently a jet that boards the ships quite uh, arbitrarily and all the time, whereas it doesn't happen in other places, there was an anxiety there. So to me, that was something that I would have never read about otherwise. It would have, I would have never experienced it. Or going down uh, in the sea uh, and, and the way that crossing through Suez, the air and water in the Mediterranean feels very different than the air and the water in the Red Sea. And then you come around uh, Bab al-Mandab, you round the corner on Bab al-Mandab and you're in the Indian Ocean. And again, it, everything feels very different. You see dolphins, uh, you see warships, you see uh, small crafts, you see what must be smugglers uh, because there are so many of them and they don't have their AIS, their automatic identification system on. Um, and so you see lots of different things that most people don't describe, or if they do describe, it's in, it's in very obscure uh, kind of locations, so it's harder to track down. But of everything, the most important thing on those trips was actually talking to the seafarers themselves, particularly the older ones that had been doing this kind of thing for 30, 40 years. Uh, the captain of one of the ships uh, had done that particular route, first for the Yugoslav uh, National Maritime Line, and now for the... Uh, for this shipping company, which I was on. And he would tell me stories about Oman before Oman had any ports. And it, so that was, you know, it, it was priceless. It was absolutely um, invaluable. I couldn't, I couldn't put a price on it. It was brilliant. And, and I think that that really shaped also the things that, um, it did shape actually my chapters because those were the kinds of things that these guys would talk about. The, the, the roads they would talk about, the free zones they would talk about, the quality of the ports they would talk about, the extent to which the, the, the speed with which some of these ports were transformed they would talk about. And that to me was really interesting coming from the viewpoint of these guys. And, and almost all the seafarers that I met and spoke to, to a person, had great politics. So that was also really great. When you hang out with these guys and you can talk to them for hours on end and they'll tell you all sorts of things about everything from Croatia to India to the Philippines, uh, where most were from. And and it was um, it was amazingly wonderful. And if I if, if I can aff ever afford it again, because those trips were paid for by my research fund, if I can ever afford it again personally, it's definitely something I want to do again. Oh, that's incredible. You've made me now want to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> you should totally do it. It's the best. You can even do it in the Mediterranean. I mean, once COVID, of course, finishes, you can yeah. do it in the Mediterranean for a week or something, and you could round the Mediterranean, which is another one that I wouldn't mind doing. So we'll see. Right. Maybe we plan a trip after uh, after lockdown. That would be great. I'd love it. <laughs> um, 
throughout the book, this question of labor really comes out very clearly. And, and you speak about the racialized labor hierarchies, both historically how they were developed and into the current moment. I mean, there's two particular chapters where you really go in depth into that history and work on the ships and on the dock. Um, tell me a little bit about that labor angle and why you thought it was so important to include it. I mean, it's interesting because when one reads about the Arabian Peninsula, and, and this is happening, uh, the, the, there's a lot more works emerging about the workers in the last 10, I'd say 15 years. Um, again, there was, a, there, was a, there, there was some really amazing research in the 1960s about workers uh, in the Gulf. And then there was, again, a kind of a, a hiatus in the 70s, 80s, and uh, early 90s until people became interested again in, in that subject. And in the last few years there have been a number of people who've done really fantastic work on both migrant laborers but also uh, workers from those same uh, countries so Rosie Bashir's work for example about Saudi workers in the oil fields and other workplaces has been really important um, and a number of other scholars Adam Hania and others uh, Michelle Buckley have written about workers uh, in in the Gulf in the smaller Gulf Emirates the one country that that had never been an issue because it had had and has had such an incredibly vibrant labor movement has been Yemen uh, and Aden in particular, but Yemen since the reunification. And so reading about Yemen, one finds that actually the workers that are um, the most disruptive and the, the most capable of being disruptive and therefore having some leverage were those who worked in the ports. That was a starting point for me where I, where I started to think about um, if in Yemen they could be so powerful as to be able to stop trade, as to be able to bring everything to a standstill, has there been a kind of a history of this in other places in the peninsula as well, given that in many other places in the peninsula, what they would be able to stop would be the trade in oil, which is, of course, the lifeline for the budgets and for the finances of many of these countries. And then you go through the archives and there are all these amazing hidden or forgotten histories about political mobilization in the 1950s and 60s in places which we now cannot possibly imagine as these incredibly vibrant sources of political activity and strikes and uh, and and claim making and those in particular were Qatar and Abu Dhabi um, which are both uh, now notorious in the way that they treat their workers um, and uh, and so for me it was really fascinating to see this kind of a prehistory of labor mobilization and again it was interesting that in both of those two cases again where the workers had quite a bit of leverage and they could stop the trade was often at the ports so that to me was a starting point for thinking about uh, the way that labor had been so significant in the making of this maritime world. But the other thing that was really interesting to me was going through the um, documents of the British labor attache. And my God, the archives there are fascinating because these labor attaches are absolutely and utterly shameless. When these strikes begin to happen in the 1950s and 60s, the one particular attache who's also extremely eloquent in that snarky diplomatic way, uh, actually writes and says the way to stop these uh, the, these uh, intransigent Arabs striking is to bring in workers that may not understand their language. Uh, 
and bring in workers that will not have governments that also stand up for them. And so this is a moment of Arab nationalism. So that meant bringing in workers from other places where Arab nationalist governments like that of Egypt or Syria might intervene. And so, uh, and, and of course the British had relationships within the Commonwealth and they established these networks to bring in workers from places where the governments may not have as much of a stake in defending their workers. So they begin importing workers from Bangladesh and Pakistan and India. And the very fact that not everybody could speak the same language was a massive factor in this because what this labor attache writes is that if they can't speak the same language, then they cannot organize together. And I think that that to me was also kind of a shock. So you begin to see that there were already pre-existing forms of racialized hierarchies, uh, but the way that these are consolidated and solidified in the 1960s and in particularly around the maritime infrastructures was really fascinating to me. On the ships, it's already obvious. The first time you get on the ship, you see that uh, for one of these, for these ships that are flagged to Europe, that have that are registered in Europe, uh, they have a really and truly visible dual regime of labor in the sense that the officers are often European, Eastern European. So they're paid probably as Eastern Europeans paid less than say German or British officers. Um, and the crew are inevitably and entirely from the global south and they're often Filipinos, uh, at least on the ships I was on. And so that also is really striking. And then you start talking to the seafarers and you realize that this kind of a dual regime also translates into uh, very distinct conditions of work. So the officers have two to four months on board the ship and then a month off at home, uh, one or two months at home, depending on what their ranking, their uh, rating is. And then the crew members could spend as much as nine months on board. And this is on a good ship. This is on a ship registered to countries where there are some semblances of labor regulation. These are The crew members are on board for nine months at a time, then go home and spend a month with their families and then have to be on board the ship again for another nine months. And so that very... Uh, radically divergent sort of working conditions also says something about where you come from and how your labor is valued and paid for, uh, which was really interesting to me. And I think it's it's fascinating how it comes through historically as well, like the colonial imprint and how much of that is sustained to this present moment. Um, yes, absolutely. I think that that has always been really interesting to me that this, this hierarchies still echo those old colonial regimes, those old colonial connections and pathways. So the British are really at the center of this story in many ways, precisely because they established so many of these uh, regimes of exploitation, but also so many of the pathways of travel for both migrants uh, and others. And, and what I like that you've done here is you, you haven't done this on the abstract level, but actually the specific companies, their legacies, their histories, how they still connect to certain universities in the UK. Um, I think that that level of detail is really interesting to highlight how these legacies of colonialism still remain with us today. I, I thought that was brilliant, like mapping it onto the companies themselves. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. But I think it's also partially because I am interested in the detail. The gossipy details are to me interesting because I think connecting different bits together, you suddenly begin to realize that this is a really huge machine of many moving parts. And it's important mm -hmm. to show it as that. It's, it's important to show where the fracture points or the stress points might be, where the points of friction are and where the points of connection and facilitation are. I wanted to know which as you say, experts, for, for example, facilitate the work of capital accumulation. I wanted to understand, uh, you know, who locally uh, was a beneficiary of this kind of a global expansion uh, and consolidation of capital there. So to me, th those kinds of little details weren't just details. They weren't just sort of empiricism gone mad, but rather a way of, as you say, mapping what is an incredibly complex uh, picture. And, and what I find interesting is that there isn't actually a lot of work on this topic. I mean, I think yours is one of the first books to really delve into this. I know there's been books on specific countries, but you've sort of taken a more regional uh, approach to it. And the, because of the hyper emphasis on oil and the hydrocarbons trade, we've really missed a lot of this history and nuance around the infrastructures. So I was wondering by centering transport infrastructure in this way, wh what story did it tell you? What did it reveal about capitalism, the state, and, and shipping, the way it's functioning in this region today? So one of the things that I want to say is that I actually uh, stand on the shoulder of many giants when I'm doing this. Um, and, and there are, and some of these giants are actually uh, young, early career colleagues whose first or second book is absolutely mind-blowing. So people who are writing stuff about smuggling routes at the beginning of the 20th century uh, in, in and around uh, Yemen, Johan Matthews' work, um, or Fahad Bishara's extraordinary work about the uses of law in the Indian Ocean. So there are there are extraordinary amount of research coming out interestingly there is also more research coming out uh, more recently about more contemporary times so there's been a wealth of really exciting new research about uh, the the sort of the pre-oil era which i think actually lays the groundwork for what we see today for the infrastructures of today but there's also a lot of really exciting work including your own but also stephen ramos who writes about um about uh dubai and and others who are writing about other kinds of infrastructure so pascal menoret for example or Matt uh, Matthew McLean writing about roads um, in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE. So that's all uh, really, um, to me, really exciting. But I think centering maritime, what it does is it importantly shows that the Arabian Peninsula is not exceptional. One of the things that one finds whenever you're reading about any of the countries in the, in the peninsula, whether they're ex the extremely affluent ones like uh, Qatar or the UAE, or the ones that have been pummeled by colonialism and regional wars or, uh, and, and uh, local corruption and exploitation and civil wars like Yemen, regardless, they're always seen to be exceptional. And they're often also seen not only as exceptional, but as hermetically sealed from, from the world around them, at least the more contemporary works are. And what I really wanted to do was to talk about contemporary infrastructures that are based on those old, long-standing colonial and also pre-colonial uh, Indian Ocean connections, but which show how 
irrevocably, the peninsula is tied in not only to its immediate context, so the Middle East, the Indian Ocean, East Africa, um, and, uh, and, and the Indian subcontinent in particular, but also to further out uh, powers that have defined so much of our today's capitalism, everybody from China, who's the factory of the world, to uh, the US and the UK, which have set so many of the parameters of trade, uh, maritime trade in particular, over the course of the last century. And so, um, in a way, I paradoxically, focusing on very local infrastructures actually allows you to draw out these global connections. And that's what I really was hoping to show was that uh, the maritime allows for the transportation of cargo, but it also means that uh, people, ideas, experts, uh, money um, also move across borders. And that's the story I really wanted to tell were, were these global connections. And, and that comes through in, in each chapter. Um, but then you get to the epilogue, the epilogue and you make this very important point about the life of these projects. And it's something um, I struggle with as well because I, I follow these projects and I, I follow their finances. And you see that these big grand announcements are made, but or the first phase of the project is done, but if you follow its construction, it's not actually completed. There's yeah. also major competition between international companies for that specific route, of course, because it's such an important route to have control over. Um, some ports have risen at the expense of others, um, most recently, we really see how this has played out in the destructive war against Yemen, um, yeah. which has shown the geopolitical interests, but underpinned by all of this has been the fight over the ports as well, which I think a lot of that story around the ports doesn't get told. And um, I think towards the end of the book, you, you explained all the changes that have been happening, but particularly touched on the war in Yemen. So I was wondering if you could tell us specifically about this particular intersection of um, ongoing war and trade? So Yemen has pretty much, from the moment that the British decided that it was going to make an extremely good coaling station in the 1830s for the East India Company, has been an enormously important strategic location. Of course, it has a history that long predates that. And it's a it's a rich and um, incredibly exciting history. But it has so inevitably, from that moment of colonization in, in the 1830s, until this moment, uh, this, this very strategic location that makes it such a sort of a desirable place also makes it a milieu of contestation, both locally and internationally. And, and in part, uh, what we have seen in the last few years has been um, the fact that so many of its ports sit on so many great trade routes, uh, but, the, but fighting by regional powers over these ports, um, and particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, um, has caused them to fall into massive disrepair and destruction. And what I mean by these regional powers fighting over them is not only for fighting for access over them, but also fighting to keep them down in some ways. Because uh, one of the things that one discovers uh, when you're researching a project like this is that it's this is actually quite a competitive and ruthless business, the port operation business. And many of the port management companies 
really don't want to see the rise of another port nearby with better infrastructure and, and, and better uh, geographic access, for example, in this instance, to the Suez Canal, but also to East Africa and to the, to the Western Indian Ocean. And so in some ways that becomes quite a factor in trying to ensure, for example, that the port of Hodeida or the port of Aden are not going to be a competition to Jabal Ali or some of the other ports um, in the region. But also significantly, uh, one finds that as the uh, global trade shifts and has been shifting over the course of the last 20 years, but shifts even more decisively towards China, where more, uh, let's say fuel, fossil fuel needs to go there, whether it's natural gas or oil. Um, what you also find is that the countries of the peninsula actually look to Indian Ocean routes. And uh, some of the ports that I write about in that epilogue um, are actually directly facing India and China on the Indian Ocean. And, and there, we know from the Saudi WikiLeaks that there has been quite a bit of interest uh, by the Saudi government in establishing some sort of a Indian Ocean facing port uh, in, for their trade in uh, oil and fossil fuel and petrochemicals. And so I think that, I, I mean, obviously, I don't want to conspiracy theorize, but certainly it has been very clear that all sorts of bids have been uh, put forward for developing these ports. Um, and there has been quite a bit of attention paid to these Indian Ocean facing ports. That said, as you began with this question, you mentioned the fact that so many of these um, ports start off with these grandiose announcements and they never go anywhere. Well, I think I was actually kind of made very aware of that when I was going through uh, those dusty back issues of trade magazines and business journals from 50, 60 years ago. And you begin to see that decade after decade after decade, the same grandiose plan is announced again and again with lots of fanfare. And it really doesn't come through uh, for another 30, 40 years, if ever. And so I think that I was in a sense that that kind of a capitalist optimism uh, to me was something that I was skeptical towards and seeing these old trade journal announcements and whatnot um, actually just sharpened that skepticism. And so what, while I wanted to talk about how there are these plans for the development of the ports in India by the rival countries as a, as a, as a means of actually extracting resources from, uh, in this instance, transport resources from, from Yemen, that this might not come through because we don't know what will happen and I tend to be more hesitant about predicting the future and, and I definitely see that uh, in the rail system that everyone keeps raving about it's always coming in the next year the rail system that will connect all the Arabian Peninsula but it, it doesn't happen and I think for various financial situations it's not likely too soon but I, no, I think no. it's it's interesting to think of these projects as very much live and you have to follow the life of the project um, yes, and in particular with the trains, I mean, it's not just finances, it's also the politics, right? The moment that Qatar and the UAE have a falling out, there goes the dream of the railway that's going to connect all the countries of the Gulf. Uh, but then if they if they reconcile, if there's a rapprochement, again, there's going to be talk of connecting those train routes. So to me, that that also the, the kind of ebb and flow of political alliances and enmities is also very central to this story. And I was hoping to talk a little bit about that, although not 
not centering that either because I'm also really tired of all the stories that only focus on the geopolitical issues in the region and who's friends with who today and who's enemies with whom today and tomorrow. And so I just really didn't want to do that. I wanted to show that that mattered to some extent, but that there were a lot of other factors at play as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because sometimes you can end up like writing basically a gossip column of the ruling family when you do that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, just just to start wrapping up here, I, I wanted uh, to ask you, because it's on everyone's mind at the moment around COVID-19 and its impact, um, you recently wrote an excellent piece on the Verso blog titled Abandoned at Sea, Sailors and COVID-19. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of what's happening in the sector today. So there's a so, so there's a, obviously the question of the cruise ships, which has been in the forefront of the news, and we know that cruise ships uh, moving from port to port have actually transported lots of people that might have been vectors for their illness from uh, different locations in the world to the others. Um, and we hear stories about the passengers because the news sources, whether they are uh, live media, uh, uh, television, or newspapers, are actually interested in the stories of the passengers. But what is often forgotten is that those cruise ships um, have sometimes up to 1,100 workers aboard the ship who, after the passengers leave, uh, are uh, remaining on the ship and in many instances cannot go home because the flights have been cancelled, because they cannot get off the port, because they cannot get permission to get off the ships. And in many instances, those workers are themselves ill because obviously they're actually living in closer quarters than any of the passengers would have done and they're working in closer quarters. So there have been instances of um, quite um, quite sick with COVID uh, passengers, uh, sorry, workers on board these cruise ships that have been abandoned at sea and in a couple of instances in East Asia they've had to be actually helicoptered out of the um, airlifted out of the ship because they were so ill and they had to be taken to the hospital so that's that's a story that is often forgotten but aside from those cruise ship workers there's uh, I, th I think the last time I checked there were 150,000 seafarers on board ships whose contracts you know the nine months that I was mentioning earlier uh, in some cases has been extended to 10 11 in one instance I read about somebody um, who's been on board ship for 13 months but who cannot leave um, and and the reason they can't leave is aside from the fact as I said that they're not allowed to uh, disembark from the ships because most ports have closed that off uh, and the ships are not inspected uh, at the moment and uh, it is impossible to get off the port even if you can get off the ship uh, in many instances and and perhaps the most significant one being Indian seafarers, uh, because India has shut all of its airports and there are no flights coming out, even if these Indian seafarers were able to get off the ships themselves, they, they would have no way of going home. And so because they would be stranded at some ports in Europe or in uh, East Asia. And so uh, this is uh, 150,000 people that cannot go home and which nobody talks about at the moment. And I think that, or at least you see a little bit more mention of this made um, as the shipping companies become a little bit anxious about this. Um, 
working on board ships can be a very lonely and depressing job at the best of times. But then when you're stuck on there and you have no idea when your contract will, will end, you have no idea if you're going to be paid for all of the additional time you've stayed on board. You have no idea if you're going to get to go, go home. When's the next time you're going to get to see your family? I think that's... Um, that's quite devastating, actually. And so I think that's uh, one of the things, one of the side effects of COVID, um, which is which is an intensification of the kind of late capitalist condition we're all living in. In some ways, the maritime situation often seems to magnify those late capitalist conditions. And perhaps that's also one of the other reasons why I wanted to write about it. Hmm. So one, one final question then is, under these conditions, what is your future plan for this research? Are there new directions? Are you continuing with it? So I really want to write um, more about the seafarers. Um, I, I, and actually, I have been speaking to some of these stranded seafarers. And originally, I was going to write an article about the sort of the, their embodied experience of this, but maybe the affective experience as well, because the, the question of loneliness and melancholy that you sort of feel is something that has actually been uh, beautifully written about in any maritime literature you can think of, from, from medieval ones written uh, in India and in the Arab world, all the way through the most modern of books. Write it, written today about the maritime conditions. So I really want to write a little bit about that, about that melancholy and the loneliness. But I also want to write about tankers. Um, and uh, as I said, it's, it's something that I've been really interested in. And, uh, and, and in particular, because of all the tankers that right now are acting, oil tankers that are acting as uh, sort of um, on, on the sea oil storage for all of the oil that is being pumped out and which nobody is consuming, buying, absorbing, being able to store. Um, that to me is also interesting. And and I really want to use the tankers as a way to talk about the way that the speculative, the virtual, you know, futures and derivatives actually intersect with the hard reality of the oil uh, be, having to be stored. So something, something very material and brute, in fact, one can say. And I really want to write about that, about that intersection. So that's, that's what's next. I can't wait to read all of it as it comes out. And thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Um, it, was, it was such a nice read. Um, it has been great to discuss it with you and have this opportunity. And thanks to everyone who tuned in to listen to us have this conversation. You can buy the book online. And thank you very much, Rafi, for your very generous um, reading of the book and for your lovely interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you. I just want to urge everyone to please go out, support independent bookstore owners and publishers. Um, this is a good time to be buying this book. Thank you. <laughs>